and welcome to the Dietitian Cafe, brought to you by Nuoutra, the innovative medical nutrition company dedicated to improving patients' lives through specialised and affordable supplements. My name is Corinne Toyne and I'm a registered dietitian and marketing specialist at HRS Communications. We invite you to drop into the Dietitian Cafe as we discuss the latest nutrition trends, topics and research. Every month, two episodes are released. One is an interview with a featured guest and the other a debate highlighting a hot topic in the world of nutrition and dietetics. However, before I start, can I ask you a huge favor? If you enjoy the Dietitian Cafe podcast, we'd be super grateful if you could press that follow button. More subscribers means more exciting guests and more interesting conversations for you, our listeners. Thank you. In today's debate episode, we'll be discussing free school meals. Where are we now and what more still needs to be done? As you started the new school year, it's one that sees all primary children in London receiving free school meals for a year, and this is in response to the cost of living crisis. In this episode, we talk to Isabel Rice, a registered dietitian and London Food Poverty Campaigner Coordinator at Sustain, and Dana Brackley, a senior food policy consultant working on child health and nutrition at Bremner & Co. to discuss the role that school meals play in improving the health and quality of life of our future generation. We look at what's currently being done to ensure that children get the energy and nutrition they need for their school day. And we discuss how the cost of living crisis in the UK has affected the quality of school foods. Our debate also touches on whether free school meals are fully compliant with the school food standards. So without further ado, I'm delighted to welcome Isabel and Dana. It's great to have you both with us. Before we get started, I'll hand over to you to introduce yourself. Isabel, let's come to you first. Thanks, Corinne. Um, Yeah, so as you mentioned, I'm a registered dietitian. My background's in both clinical and public health nutrition. And following a master's I did in global health nutrition, I was inspired to work towards promoting more sustainable food systems and uh, reducing nutritional and health inequality. So most of my research and advocacy work has focused on food insecurity in the UK. I've also been involved in management of frontline food aid provision. I joined Sustain a year ago now, so September 2022, to coordinate the London Food Poverty Campaign, which works to highlight and encourage sustainable responses to food poverty in the capital. So I work very closely with local authorities and food partnerships across London on measures to address root causes of food poverty with our Beyond the Food Bank approach. And part of this includes leading on the Good Food for All Londoners report. So this is an annual report that benchmarks councils um, and aims to inspire leadership on aspects of food policy and practice that relate to food poverty and beyond as well. I also lead on the National Connecting Community Food Enterprises Project. So we're working with community food projects and and food-based enterprises across the country and looking to develop um, sustainable development of these projects and also on London Food Link. So this is a network supporting these organisations specifically in London. um, And I'm also a committee member of the Public Health Specialist Group for the British Dietetic Association. Great. Thank you, Isabel. How about you, Dana? So I'm a senior food policy consultant at Bremner & Co. So it's a small organisation working on child health and nutrition. So I work with campaigners, local governments, NGOs and charities in the food system on projects that are looking to improve children's nutrition. 
and I work across the life course. So I'm currently working on projects in on breastfeeding, early years nutrition, school food and food and further education. And one of my kind of specialist areas is children's experience of food within settings and institutions. So that might be early years childcare or school food or food in kind of universities. Um, Bremner and Co also coordinate the work of the School Food Review Group, which is a network of 40 organisations and they're working to get fairer funding, equitable access and quality assurance for school food with the overall aim of ensuring children get a nutritious and delicious school food meal. So that's me. Thank you. Well, it certainly sounds like you're both very busy <laughs> and I'm really looking forward to our conversation and hearing a bit more about what you do and, and the work that you're kind of involved in. So let's get started with a few quick fire questions to get to know you both a little better. Let's go to you first, Dana. What's your go-to for telly at the moment? So I am just finishing up my master's at the Centre for Food Policy. So my brain is full all the time. So I just want something very relaxing. So I go to Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown, which is Anthony Bourdain, the late Anthony Bourdain, travelling around various countries, just eating their food and getting involved in their culture. And it's really soporific and makes me hungry at all times, but it's mm-hmm. it's fantastic. I would recommend it. Oh, I'm adding that to my list. Thank you. And how about you, Isabel? Um, I am in, enjoying the classic uh, Great British Bake Off at the moment. I'm also I'm I'm also a very keen dancer, so I also enjoy a bit of Strictly Come Dancing. I'm speaking my language. Just got kids <laughs> into Strictly Come Dancing, and they are absolutely loving it absolutely loving it yeah I never used to be a Strictly fan but this year's just got me I absolutely love it it's like a religion like thing for me now I like watch it every Saturday yeah it's It's very easy to watch isn't it yeah (laughs) I love all the dresses and the lovely Mm. yeah it's it's lovely yeah and um, Dana who has inspired you recently so I had a workshop with a lot of organisation working in early years nutrition recently and the food that we had for lunch was prepared by a nursery chef. So it was great. So it had uh, no sugar, um, no salt, but she made these fantastic muffins. Her name was Janet and she told us this really good story about how when children used to get collected from school, they would run up to their parents to try and get like the snacks. So what's for snack? What's for snack? And what Janet did was every day when parents were going to come and collect their children, she put out loads of fruit, new different types of fruit, and she totally eliminated the parent, uh, the kids going to their parents for the snack packs. And now the kids were coming saying, Janet, what's, what fruit is there? What fruit is there? And it was just that, just a really inspirational lady, just that little tweak changing from having snacks to having fresh fruit every day. I just found that really inspiring. Janet sounds like a wonderful lady. She was, she was awesome. And how about you, Isabel? Um, I have just been to Morocco to visit my friend who works for the UN and she's supporting um, kind of gender equality and women getting into business. And she moved over from London to Morocco, kind of on a bit of a whim, getting this job and she's loving it and having a great time. So I, I thought that was really inspiring that she's gone and set her life up in Morocco and has doing all this great work and she's also set up a side project for um female entrepreneurs who who make kind of crafts or clothes or or you know produce something themselves and she's really passionate about it so yeah I think it's really inspiring to see what she's done over there 
Wow, that sounds brilliant. I love hearing stories like that. Okay, so let's crack on with the episode questions. So to kickstart today's episode, can you give us some background on the organizations you're working at and the involvement your current roles have in the Free School Meals initiative? Dana, let's start with you. Could you tell us more about your role at Bremner & Co? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we do a lot of research projects, policy and advocacy. And at the moment, I'll give you an example of the projects that I'm working on. So I'm working on a project to try and determine the barriers to breastfeeding and to also look at the experiences of formula feeding mothers. I'm also looking at early years nutrition. So the nutrition that's served in nurseries and childcare um the the big the piece of information of that is that, that nobody really knows so there is a lack of evidence about what's going on around nutrition in early years settings and then with regards to kind of preschool meal related projects there's probably three that I'm involved in the first one is um assisting with the evaluation of the rollout of free school meals the mayor of london free school meals scheme alongside many other great organizations so for those that don't know that that's the Mayor of London scheme for 270,000 primary school children um, and that will save them about £440 a year. So it's a really important scheme because it has the ability to prove the benefits of free school meals, which I'm sure we'll talk about a lot. The other thing um, I'm working on is with an organisation called Fix, or, Fix Our Food in Yorkshire. So I'm working with them on auto-enrolment. So again, for those that don't know, and so unfortunately the data is 10 years old, but in 2013, the government reported that 11% of children who who should get free school meals don't get free school meals. And I'm working with Fix Our Food on with Yorkshire local authorities to try and use their own data matching services to try and reach those what would be 250,000 if it was a national figure of people's missing out on free school meals. So those are children that should get free school meals, are eligible for free school meals, but for some reason are not getting them. And then finally, it's the work that my organisation does alongside the you know 40 other organisations within there of um, the School Food Review Group. So that work is around campaigning for fairer funding, so making sure there's enough money in the system so that children get food equitable access so that's about children's right to food we should be feeding children in school settings it there shouldn't be means testing there's not means testing for lots of other things and quality assurance which i'm sure isabel can talk a bit more about late later but that's around the monitoring and accountability for school food so in a similar way to earlier's food there's just uh, i mean school food is a lot further ahead than earlier's food but in earlier there's, there's no monitoring and accountability um, and it's making sure that the food that children do eat is nutritious and delicious. So that's my kind of span of work at the moment on my plate. Sounds great. I mean, the one thing that stands out to me is is the collaboration involved in your role. You're working with so many different organisations. So that partnership, you know, ability to build relationships sounds like that's something that's quite important. The work absolutely. That you do. Yeah, absolutely. Strong, stronger together, stronger together always. Um, mm-hmm. I work with some amazing organisations, Impact on Urban Health, um, who work, who do a lot of great work on preschool meals and early years, and then Fix Our Food, which work across the food system, but also very focused on um, children's school food. But yeah, I'm sure I'm sure Isabel will say the same about Sustain. The, the child food world is incredibly collaborative, like everybody mm-hmm. is there to help each other. And everybody kind of knows who's got bits of data where and there's a lot of kind of group working 
and an incredible amount of support in the in the child food kind of campaigning and advocacy world, which mm-hmm. is great because like yeah, like I say, the better together really. Great. So let's go to you then, Isabel. What does your role as London Food Poverty Campaign Coordinator at Sustain involve? Yeah, so I work on promoting policy and practice broadly that would impact food poverty and aiming to kind of address root causes of it uh, rather than you know, focusing on just sort of giving people food, but trying to um, avoid them avoid food insecurity happening in the first place or reduce food insecurity overall. Um, and children's food is a key part of that, but obviously it's it's broader. So we cover the whole whole kind of life course and, and looking at looking at different areas and different groups that might be more at risk of experiencing food insecurity. But we know that um, households with children in this country are much more likely to experience food insecurity, for example, than households that, that don't have children. Um, and in London, about 33% of children are are currently estimated to be living in um, in poverty. So it, it's really it's really stark figures. And in in certain boroughs, it's about 50% of children, which is really shocking. So it, it you are impacted by kind of wh- where you live and where where you're born and where you grow up. So so we have we do have a big issue, particularly with kind of child poverty in London. So my role really involves working a lot with with councils, local authorities, food partnerships, other charities and organisations across London to promote policy and practice that we know is impactful. Um, And one of the ways that we do that is by doing an audit each year. So we work closely with councils and we ask them about all all the different work they're doing across all different aspects of, of food and promoting good food in their borough, which includes access to food and reducing food insecurity. So that's called Good Food for All Londoners, and that will be coming out in in February of next year. So what we do is we monitor all the work that's going on. We actually score councils and rank them in a league table so you can see how your local council is performing. Um, and we we also have case studies and exhibit lots of brilliant work that's going on across London. And of course, work on children's food and school food is a big part of that. Um, I also work quite closely with my colleagues at Sustain who work on the children's food campaign. So they really lead on work around children's food, which includes um, which includes school food. So they're running a national campaign at the moment called Say Yes. We'll say yes to school food for all. So that's that's really campaigning nationally to bring in universal free school meals and I know we're going to talk about why we think that's the best approach and by work quite closely with colleagues there. Um, and I'm also linked in with the Sustainable Food Places Network. So Sustain is one of the organisations that runs this national network. Um, and this is a network of food partnerships. So local level partnerships of all the key players around food in that area who are working together to try and improve food. And of course, key key on everyone's agenda at the moment is trying to tackle food poverty, particularly during the cost of living crisis, where it's so high at the moment across the country. We hear lots about free school meals and their importance for children's health and well-being. What does the research say about the benefits of free school meals? Isabel, we'll come to you for this one. Yes. Um, so 
In other countries which have implemented universal free school meals and also in particular areas in the UK where we've seen them implement free school meals, we have evidence that there's been a lot of benefits. So in countries like Brazil, India, Sweden, Finland, and actually eight states in the United States are currently um, of America currently developing, de delivering, sorry, universal school meals. Um, so in Sweden, they found that actually having this universal approach has shown a lifetime earnings benefit for children. So overall, for everyone, there was a 3% impact um, improvement in lifetime earnings, but it's actually doubled to 6% for the most deprived. So this kind of shows that by feeding all children in a universal approach, this has lifted everyone in the classroom. So everyone comes out better off in terms of nutrition, health, mood, and the attainment that their educational attainment and the evidence of lifetime earnings benefit as well. So we see there's there's support, obvious support to families that are particularly struggling and would struggle to afford that school meal and to afford a nutritious lunch for their child. And those children are getting a nutritious lunch. But we know that actually the universal approach seems to reduce health inequalities for everyone by factors such as increasing intake of fruit and vegetables across the board. We see reduced diet related disease um, and an increased uptake of school meals is also associated with higher educational attainment. There was a really cool piece of um, piece of modelling done by PwC that showed that for every one pound invested in free school meals um, in the UK, this could actually deliver one pound 71 in cost saving health and education benefits if a universal approach was, was taken. So we've got really great evidence for the positive impact across the board of universal free school meals. And we also see reports, you know, kind of anecdotal reports from teachers saying that it creates a more co cohesive and happy school. Teachers are less kind of bogged down in admin of sorting out who's getting the free school meals and payments and so on, and are actually free to spend their time doing other things. Parents are less worried about having to get food and make packed lunches. So these, and there's less stigma because children who are eligible for free school meal meals are not being, you know, singled out, out of other children. So we see all these knock-on effects that are all really positive. Okay. And Dana, what role do you think free school meals plays in improving the quality of life of our future generation? Yeah, I, I mean, I was going to also bring up that research, Isabel. I'm really glad you did about the cost-benefit analysis and the increased lifetime earnings. So to touch on the other bits, I think if I think about health and education, I think without any evidence, we can say that a hungry child will find it harder to learn. Um, and I don't need any evidence. I have children. I can confidently say that. Um, so I think other evidence which is useful around, I mean, this relates to secondary schools, um, but it, about preschools improving mental well-being, there's, there's evidence to support that. And also in terms of health, universal preschool meals reduced obesity by 9.3% in reception and 5.6% in year six, which is a, one of the latest pieces of evidence. So it can help contribute to um, reduced obesity levels. And then on the educational point, there's some really good evidence out there. Like one statistic that always comes to my mind is children on uh, universal preschoolers make four to eight weeks more progress in English and maths. Um, and that's fantastic. I find maths really hard. <laughs> um, and I guess that comes back to hungry children find it harder to learn, um, which shows the importance of preschool meals, but also the importance of kind of the the breakfast clubs that, that are around like Magic Breakfast. And the, the other thing on the education front is that it 
increases attendance for children living in disadvantage. So obviously that is going to improve their well-being if there's increased attendance. So I think Isabel really covered the economics, but the the health and the education benefits are there as well. Mm-hmm. And obviously there's a variety of messages here. They're all equally important. But do you find that it's you know really useful to have the, the data in the toolkit, the statistics that you can adapt your messaging when you're compa- campaigning to different audiences? I would say that's one one of the things that I mean, I can talk a bit more about the school food review group working group later, but that's one of the things that they are fantastic at is building this evidence base. So they've produced some amazing reports. So one is called the superpower of free school meals and their campaign work like feed the future they're all underpinned by really good data and really good research. And again, coming back to working partnership, that's because you've got so many passionate people who can, who just like, like Isabel does, you know, rolls off the stats and knows her stuff because we know that we need the evidence base to convince policymakers of the benefits of these, of, of this universal policy. So yeah, absolutely. Um, knowing your figures and knowing your stats and having this research base is, is really important. Interesting to know. Thank you. We heard a little in the introduction about the ongoing debate around the provision of free school meals. Dana, could you give us some background on the current state of free school meals in the UK? Yeah. So um, it, it's actually quite confusing. There's, I mean, what we all believe, which I'm sure Isabel will agree, is about like a child's right to food. But actually, when it gets broken down into many, many different layers. So lots of people don't realise that you are eligible for free school meals in nursery. Um, so at the moment, that figure is only 8%, so 8% eligible for nursery for preschool meals. But going back to Isabel's point, we know that one in four um, households with children are living in poverty. So those numbers don't match up. So there's nursery preschool meals. Then you've got universal preschool meals, which is, <laughs> excuse me, children in reception, key stage one um, and year two. Um, so you've got that set, which is universal preschool meals. And then you've got benefits related free school meals so that's it's just so complicated i think what we're all campaigning for is let's have children's rights to food and not all of these complicated figures but at the moment there's 23.8 percent of children in the uk um on free school meals which is about 2 million children and that is increasing year on year um but i mean separate to that adding to the complexity of free school meals there's if you consider the children living in poverty, the, the latest research suggests that 800,000 children are missing out on free school meals due to the strict eligibility criteria. And then on top of that, you've got the auto-enrollment, which I talked about earlier. You've got 11% of children who are eligible for free school meals who are not getting it through some issue with administrative issues in when, and data issues. So why is it this complicated, I guess is my question. Um, it should just be about children having access to food during the mm. 190 days of the year when they're at school. It shouldn't be this complicated. Um, mm. So that's a little bit of background, if that's if that's useful. It certainly is. Yeah, thank you. And just going back to the numbers then. So, Isabel, do we have visibility on how many children qualify for free school meals? And do we have any idea of how many caregivers are actually struggling to provide food for their children who fall outside of the free school meal provision scheme? Yes. Well, as um, Darius said, it's um, it, it's approximately 2 million, actually more than 2 million 
children now that are eligible and the, the amount of people that are eligible is actually increasing which which is a sign of of how many households are struggling so the 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 threshold for entitlement in the UK is actually very low. So in England and Wales, the threshold for entitlement is £7,400 of household income before benefits. Um, In Scotland, it's £7,920. And in Northern Ireland, it's £14,000. So it changes depending on where you live, but it is a very low amount. But what we're actually seeing in the cost of living crisis is more and more households that whose income is coming below this amount so the children are eligible um, for free school meals but um, Child Poverty Action Group um, most recent statistics um, suggested that there's actually nearly a million children 900,000 school age children that are, are living in poverty but are missing out on the free school meals so mm-hmm. uh, so it, it's really it, you know it's a lot of children that are going without yeah and Dana just Let's think about then the um, fixed cost sort of fund fund amount by the UK government for each free school meal. Has this been adjusted in line with inflation in recent years or has it stayed pretty static? I mean, it, it did it did go up in 2022. So it, going back a few years, in, in 2014, it was £2.30 and now it's £2.41. But it has not kept pace with inflation. It is outstripped inflation. And I think the other things to consider is all of the other stuff going on, like not just food costs, but staffing costs and electricity costs. So back to what the School Food Review Working Group are campaigning for, is that is that fairer funding? Um, because it's it's not it's not matching inflation, it's it's you know outstripping inflation by a long time time and not going up very much at all if you consider you know £2.30 just under 10 years ago to £2.41 now and I think we've all mm-hmm. been to the shops and we know the, impre- the the cost of food and we know that that's not realistic. Yeah so I mean let's ask both of you then do you think it's actually possible to provide a nutritious meal to a school going child with this amount? Dana what do you think? Well I think personally that schools are doing an amazing job in what they're doing um the schools and the settings that i um speak to are doing the best they possibly can within the circumstances they're they're working to i think i'd direct the question more around the nutrition thing to isabel as she's the nutritionist <laughs> but from my point of view i think you know schools are, are doing and amazing. there is some amazing school food out there mm-hmm. so what do you think isabel well i think um you know, as as Dana explained, it, it is really challenging in t- in terms of cost of not only food but also things like energy and stuff. And and schools are working really really hard to try try and provide good quality nutritious meals for this amount. Um, is it actually possible? Well, I suppose this is perhaps a bit debatable. So I know that um, chefs in schools maintain that you can deliver healthy meals at this amount, and there are schools doing fantastic work. It's particularly a bigger challenge for smaller schools, and actually we see that the least cost-effective way of trying to provide nutritious meals is um, if if your canteen is only half full, if you don't actually have lots of people taking up the meals because. It, with efficiencies of scale can make it more affordable. So, you know, for smaller schools or for schools where there's not high take up, this can be more challenging. Um, And we do see some schools as well actually topping up the amount. So the they're actually adding on so that they can produce better or more nutritious meals and obviously not 
receiving additional funding for this. Um, so the funding from the Mayor of London to provide universal free school meals in primary schools was given at £2.65 per meal. Per meal. So th this is given at a higher amount. Um, research kind of suggests that actually this this still possibly isn't in line with inflation in terms of the huge spikes in in cost of food, energy bills, wages, etc. Um, but obviously this is at a higher amount than than the kind of standard gov government amount. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's it's challenging. It's really challenging, I would say. Mm. What I'm hearing from both of you, though, is that it's so important to acknowledge the great work that schools are already doing and not to discourage that because obviously they're working really hard to make this work. It's obviously wider factors that, you know, the organisations that you're a part of are campaigning for. And that kind of brings us nicely onto the school food standards. So many of our listeners will be familiar with the standards. Do you think, um, Isabel, that the standards are being met consistently across schools in the UK? So the school food standards are mandatory uh, for all maintained schools. So this means schools which are maintained by the local authorities and also across new academies and free schools. Um, they're not mandatory for private schools, although schools might choose to take them up. Um, and they were last reviewed actually in 2014, so quite a long time ago. We know they are currently under review, so, so waiting for updates. And I think there's been there's been lots of challenges with that, and I'm sure um, Dana might have more <laughs> more to say about that. Um, but yes, they are they are generally uh, mandatory for schools. But in ter in terms of the quality, there is evidence to suggest that this might vary across schools and particularly we might be seeing this in secondary schools mm -hmm. okay and do, what do you think about the cost of living crisis has that had a huge notable effect on the quality of school foods well i'm not aware of any specific research that suggests this dana i don't know if if you know more about this but as we've alluded to the you know the costs of foods have gone up they might be having to pay more in staff costs definitely more in energy costs and so on so many schools will have had to kind of make adjustments to what they're actually able to serve unfortunately i think yeah i mean one of the one of the the key kind of bedrocks of the school food work and review group is about quality assurance and yes the standards are under review for because they yeah they are they need to be but it's also a the the FSA, so the Food um, Food Standards Agency, are currently doing a compliance pilot on on the school food standards. So they're working with environmental health people who who would already be going into school to offer some checks and accounting on school food, and that is exactly what we need to happen. So there there hasn't been the evidence from that yet. It's it's a compliance pilot pilot that's happening at the moment, but that research when that comes out is going to be really really useful for us because it would be fantastic if we had better kind of monitoring and accountability um so that we were able to confidently answer your questions at the moment we can't say because we don't know mm. the evidence base isn't there i mean it would be different for whether you were in a rural school or a small school a school in an area of disadvantage so it yeah it's quite hard to answer Okay, so we almost need the data before we think about how we can overcome some of these challenges and obstacles. When it comes to actually accessing free school meals, so what are the challenges and barriers that families face? Dana, what do you think um, are the kind of yeah issues there and what can be done to improve eligibility and reach? Yes, absolutely. So 
I think Henry Dimbleby said in the National Food Strategy that um, it should it's not right that paperwork sits in between a child and a hot meal. So there are administrative, technical and barriers related to stigma because if it's not so if it's benefits related preschool meals then parents have to apply for it so there may be language barriers there may be the barriers of technology there may be barriers for administration so those are all barriers that stop children being able to access free school meals and I think one of the areas what we could look to overcome that is something that I'm working with with Fix Our Food and there are many other national organizations working on that and that is auto enrollment or other people call that auto award. It's it's called lots of different things. So firstly, just to recap that figure. So it's 11% of children that are eligible for free school meals are not getting them. And that figure was confirmed, um, confirmed by the Child Poverty Action Group in 2022. Firstly, the government need to update that figure. It's 10 years old. We need a better reflection of of how many children are missing out. So at the moment we're guessing that's about 250,000 pupils missing out. So what some local authorities across the country are doing are starting their own kind of data matching service using the information that they have to find those children and to get them free school meals overcoming those barriers. So that work is happening across, across the country at the moment. I guess my point is it shouldn't need to happen there should be better systems in place. There should be equitable access to free school meals so that local authorities are not having to take the burden of trying to do auto, auto award or auto enrollment. It is happening because local authorities are fantastic and they want to feed hungry children, but really it shouldn't be happening at all. Mm, because yeah. it, should just, it should just feed children. Children have a right to food. Completely, completely. Thanks for sharing that. And then talking a bit more then about the School Food Review Working Group, could you tell us a bit about this, Dana, and the role that it plays? Yes. So um, there's about 40 member organisations part of um, the School Food Review Working Group. Um, And I think one of the important things to say about this is it's not just campaigners. So while we've got amazing campaigners on it, so Bite Back Food Foundation, kind of School Food Matters, um, we also have representatives from the teachers and education unions so head teacher unions the national governments association um so there is everybody working in the school food system who is part of that group and that's what makes it so powerful because it's not just campaigners saying this is what needs to happen it's actually understanding what's happening on the ground in schools which is why we can talk about you know the issues around inflation and feeding children so it's it's basically it's a it's a place to convene and discuss all things school food. But one of the which I talked about earlier, one of the really strong things that School Food Review Working Group do is building that evidence base. So my facts and stats that I'm throwing out, a lot of those facts and stats come from the work of this group. So I'd really encourage people to seek out a publication called The Superpowers of Free School Meals, which is you ever needed to convince anyone about the benefits of free school meals. It just everything is covered within there. They worked on the cost benefit analysis, um, which Isabel talked about earlier, which showed that for every one pound invested, there's one pound 71 returns. And that is a lot of the information that policymakers will need to know. But not only do they create evidence for policymakers, they also work really hard to raise school food on the public and news agenda. So a lot of the stuff that you see in the press, there is a lot of cogs turning 
in this group to make a lot of that stuff happen. Um, and they work really hard on that. And not only do they try and work with policymakers, they also work with parents. So they also work to understand what the public think about free school meals. So the public really care about free school meals and are really supportive of free school meals. And the reason that's really important is because that's what government wants to know. <laughs> government wants to know if people are behind it um, and they they 100% are. So they are behind a lot of the volume and the noise and they are an incredibly kind of passionate group of people who produce really, really good work. So, yes, yeah, it's, it's a honour for our organisation to be to be part of it. I'll definitely um, be checking them out. On that, lastly on that, because it is really important, they have kind of distilled down what we need to be talking about when we're thinking about free school meals, because I think, as you will have heard through this podcast, it, there's a load, there's a lot of complexity to it in terms of the different funding pots and different age related things and postcode lotteries and eligibility criteria. But what it boils down to is fairer funding, which is about that amount of money that is given for the free school meal, equitable access so that everybody has access to free school meals and quality assurance. Let's make sure that the free school meals or the meals that children eat in school are nutritious and delicious. And it's those three things that are really important that they uh, that they talk about often. That's super clear. Thank you for summarising those three points. I think we can definitely all remember that and, and take that away from this conversation. I'll say it a few more times before we end just to make sure. <laughs> yeah, great. Oh, that'd be, that'd be fab. Yeah, I keep saying I've said it. it about five times already, so... <laughs> No, but it's, it's so important. So yeah, keep saying it as much as you, as you want to. And Isabel, many of our listeners may see patients who could benefit from free school meals. Do you have any advice on how to sens- sensitively ask if families are struggling and what we can do as dietitians to help here? Yes. So this is something I have been asked about quite a lot and I've given quite a few university lectures around food poverty for dietitians um, training and other groups. So I think this this is something that often strikes me that I feel a lot of dietitians struggle with a bit or feel a bit unsure, a bit uncomfortable at actually asking their their patients or, or clients about or feeling that it's perhaps a bit taboo or they might offend people asking. And I think it's actually something that I think is generally quite lacking in our training. And that's something I've done some kind of work and campaigning around um, because not all not all courses necessarily adequately cover this, I don't feel. Um, but actually, in my experience, when working clinically, I've simply incorporated it into my nutritional assessment that you would do, you know, on a first first meeting with a, with a patient or client, depending on your setting. And I think it's important to remember that you need to know this to be able to tailor your advice to somebody. If, if you have absolutely no clue about, you know, their, their food budget or how much how much money they're able to spend on food or if they're struggling in any way then how are you going to be able to tailor your advice about what sort of food they should be you know buying and preparing and things like that i think it's really important and actually when i when i worked clinically Clinically, I would always ask about this as part of my assessment and it was never questioned because it makes sense. I think it can be done sensitively. Um, and, and of course, considering that it could be a difficult topic for some people. But, you know, as dietitians, we do ask people very sensitive information about their health status, about their bowel habits, etc. So if we're able to, uh, to sensitively ask these kind of questions, it makes perfect sense to ask somebody about their food budget, um, if they ever worry about 
uh, running out of money for food or things like that simply as part of the assessment and also it's really important to listen out for for mentions or cues um you know, if there's any mention of, of, of things maybe being expensive or, or worrying about the cost of things or anything like that and pick up on that. Um, and it's part of your job, I think, to know how to recommend cooking on a budget, um, to signpost perhaps to resources where there might be sort of cheap recipes or affordable affordable recipes. Um, there are resources out there that help people to shop and cook on a budget. Um, and I think it's also part, you know, if you're working clinically, it's part of that making every contact count. So it's actually part of your job to be able to identify some of these issues and signpost people for additional support where that's necessary. Um, and if you don't have this existing where where you're working clinically, perhaps you could put together an information sheet on where there is local support for food in your area or um, organizations that support people perhaps with debt or, or benefit advice. And actually your local council sh should have a, a page on the website about this that you could also signpost people to. Um, also, you know, dietetic clinics or if you're working in a hospital that you can be a referrer for local food banks or community food projects as well, if you're not already. Um, so I think just having, having a bit of knowledge, it, I'm not saying that the dietitian is going to solve all of these problems, but as the professional that is qualified to speak to people about food, this I think is part of the part of your job. So there's lots that you can do. Yeah, the dietitian definitely takes on that key role as educator mm. um, when it comes to food. And yeah, being able to to bridge the gap and signposts to various resources is really important. As you say, every contact counts. And this is why having these conversations with you both is really useful because, you know, hopefully our listeners can now know where to direct to. And I know that the British Dietetic Association also has some great food fact sheets as well on cooking on a budget. Um, but yeah, thank you. That was really good advice. I'm sure that will benefit many. So Dana, as we know, only primary school children in London will be getting free meals in the current school year. Do you think this scheme should be extended to secondary school children as well as school going children and in other parts of the country? Yeah, I think that there's kind of two answers to this. The first answer is that it should be universal. We should have free universal free school meals because it's it's just such a complicated picture as you travel through the life course. So you get to age one and two and then if you earn less than seven thousand four hundred pounds a year yes you can get free school meals or nursery but nobody knows about it so the eligibility rate is very low then you get to okay we do have universal free school meals but only for three or four years of children then we get to benefits related and it's just so complicated so the answer is there should be universal free school meals the second answer is yes, absolutely. Whilst local authorities are taking up the mantle and doing this amazing work, wouldn't it be fantastic if, if it extended to secondary schools? Um, and I, there are some local authorities that are already doing this. and I'd like to kind of highlight their work. So Westminster, for example, has just invested £2.9 million in free school meals for children aged three to 14 um, and that's in all settings. So what, what I mean by that it, from the nursery point of view is in nurseries, you have um, three types of settings. You have state-maintained, childminders, and private and voluntary. And it's actually the private and voluntary that make up 70% of childcare places, which means that only 25% of children are in state-maintained, which means it's only those children that would be eligible for free school meals. Um, 
But what Westminster are saying is, no, no, right to food. So it's children from age three to 14, saving families on average 500 to 570 pound, um, pounds per year. Tower Hamlets already doing primary and secondary. Back to Isabel's point, that is the one of the local London boroughs where 47% of people live below the poverty line. So Tower Hamlets have taken up the mantle there. So what is happening is really good because those two, Westminster, Tower Hamlets, and what the Mayor of London are doing, are building an evidence base for efficacy, which we need for policymakers, and looking at things like health and education and, and well-being. But it shouldn't be for local authorities to do this, is my personal opinion. It should be mm. for government to be doing this. Um, so eligibility for everyone um, is, is really important. And so that's some, some great success stories there. Can you highlight what is the key factor that's helped to move the dial in those authorities? Absolutely. So it's political leadership within a local authority. So it's having strong leadership for people within local authorities that really believe in children's right to food and really recognise that giving a child a very nutritious meal on 180 90 days of the year is really important. So you need those people in power within local authority to make things things happen. And then you need money, mm. <laughs> you need funding. Um, so it would be both Westminster and Tower Hamlets have identified funding to be able to do that. So it's political leadership and money is what it was what it boils down to. I don't know if you had anything else on that, Isabel. No, I'd agree with that. And and I'm aware of, you know, local authorities that would be really keen to implement this, but you know, you can't pull the funding out, out of thin air, unfortunately. So so both of those things are needed and, and there is great work going on um in other places. I know, for example, in Hammersmith and Fulham, they they've done some pilots of universal free school meals in secondary schools, um, in two secondary schools, which which had really, really positive results in terms of uptake, in terms of cohesion and and behaviour and kind of really positive things reported on that. But you know, they don't have the funding available to kind of roll that out across the whole borough. Southwark, Southwark also do free nursery meals. So there's some really great leadership happening in local authorities across mm. the country to make this happen. That's great to hear. And would you say that all this kind of great work that's being done in London is hopefully going to influence the rest of the UK? I think Dana? Yeah, I mean, there's two spheres of influence. The main influence that we need is with policymakers to make this a universal policy. I think, like Isabel said, there are there are a great deal of leaders within local authorities who want to make this happen but cannot because they don't have the funding. But it's not their role. It's the role of government, is my belief, is government should be responsible for making sure that children have a hot, nutritious lunch when they go to school. So, yes, fantastic, of course, when it rolls out across the country because more children are being fed what I'm hoping for, and I'm sure Isabel is too, is just really building this evidence base, is being able to look kind of pre and post, as in um, these children who weren't getting them and now were getting them. And I'm hoping, and I really hope to see, and I'm sure it will happen, that you will have happier, healthier children, and you will have families who have benefited during the cost of living crisis, which, of course, then is happier healthier families as well as happier mm. healthier children so i'm i feel very optimistic about the possibility for the evidence base being built which will then enable us to hopefully 
campaign for policymakers to make this a universal policy. Wonderful. Thank you. So, Isabel, if we think about the long term benefits, I know that we've spoken about it throughout this this conversation, but for those of us that maybe aren't familiar with the long term benefits of investing in free school meals, are you able to summarize some of the kind of top uh, you know uh, impact that the free school meals can have on the on the long term future of the UK? Yes, um, and I know we've we've talked about this a lot, and I think that that actually and Dana's explained this really well but I think actually when you when you look at the the figures and the and the research you, you can kind of start asking can we actually afford not to do this in term in terms of how you know how impactful this is as a as a policy measure and kind of relatively compa- compared to other policy measures it's it's not such an expensive measure particularly in terms of the the returns that you'd get so obviously we we've we've covered the fact the fact that there's you know, nearly nearly a million children who are who are not eligible for free school meals, but living in poverty, who are not getting those meals, and then the eleven percent who are eligible but are not taking it up, and then we know beyond that, there's many many families that are struggling. So actually, receiving um, a nutritious free meal that for their children at school would be really really helpful to families and help and we very much recommend this as a policy for kind of um you know tackling root causes of food poverty but this goes so much further beyond by beyond that it's not just about food poverty it's also about health it's about nutritional status it's about education educational attainment children attending school children doing better at school and then as I mentioned earlier, the um, the evidence we have from Sweden is that actually lifetime income is increased where there's universal free school meal. So there's ab- absolutely a myriad of, of benefits and the evidence is pretty unequivocal here. Um, so we're talking, you know, s- serious improvements in the future of the UK in terms of health um, and nutrition related diseases and, and in terms of the economy as well. Amazing. That's really powerful to hear you kind of summarize th- that in that way. And, you know, I'm sure for anyone listening, it'll be it's clear the benefit of investing in free school meals. Um, so yeah, hopefully we can we can share this podcast as much as possible and, and support the work that you both are doing, which is fantastic. So Dana, going forward, what are some key goals and priorities for both government policymakers and organisations in further enhancing the quality and accessibility of school meals? And I know you've touched on this already, but just to close off the episode, what would you like to be the kind of uh, lasting message uh, surrounding this? Yeah, I think we need to create more volume and more noise, which obviously one of the reasons I was very happy to attend this podcast is because it contributes to that. We know from polling that it consistently says that people want properly funded free school meals. So it's about continuing to bang that drum and continuing to build the rational evidence base that we can take to policymakers. Obviously, there are opportunities for that coming up with a general election in terms of trying to lobby for free school meals to be within manifestos, um, which I'm sure lots of people across the board are working really hard on behind the scenes. Um, I think one thing I'd be really keen to hear more from is schools, um, more from schools banging the drum as well, getting school leaders to tell the story about how how good free school meals are and the benefits that it that, that it gives to people. Um, and I am going to end on my 
three things that I think we all need to continue to be saying consistently across the piece, and that is fairer funding, equitable access, and quality assurance. A, they're easy to remember in a world where free school meals is quite complicated, and it's it's three. I know they're not simple asks, but they're simply um, they're simple messages to ask. So that's what I would be like everyone to be making more more volume and noise around those three things. I think. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. And on a side note, how can people get more involved in the type of work that you're doing? I'd love to hear just quickly from the both of you, you know, in terms of your career journeys. And do you have any tips for anyone that would like to get involved in campaigning, you know, especially around school foods? Um, Isabel, let's go to you first. Any tips? Yes. So there's always, um, you know, campaigns and actions going on. Actually, if, if, if you're interested, you can go onto the Sustain website and look at the children's food campaign. So as I mentioned earlier, they're running the Say Yes campaign. So you can actually, if, if you believe in this and you agree that we should have universal free school meals, we have a, a national map that you can actually put your name on. And that's going to go to, to government um, as showing people, individuals, as well as organizations and all the way up to councils that are saying we should be saying yes to universal free school meals. There's also an e-action to email your MP to end the postcode lottery as some children, depending where you live, do get free school meals and in other areas you don't. So that's a way you can be involved or if you're feeling passionate about this, you can write to your MP or um you know, bring it up, talk about it, share this podcast with people um, and get it on the agenda. As um, as Dana said, this is something that we need to be we need to be shouting about. Thank you. And how about you, Dana? Any kind of tips yeah. for someone looking to follow a similar career path? I would say that going back to some of these, I mean, Sustain is one of them, but these amazing organisations, other ones I would encourage people to go and follow Biteback is fantastic. So Biteback is representing the views of young people. So if you're if you're starting out on your kind of food policy journey, go and all of these organizations have superb newsletters. So School Food Matters, Biteback, Chefs in Schools, Sustain, first point, go up and sign up to them. And one of the really clever things that the organizations do is to write um, letters for you, which summarize what the asks are and ask you to sign your name. So it's it's kind of taking some of the onus off you, but clarifying the points in a really easy to explain a way or giving you example social media posts so you don't have to worry or be nervous around what you're writing because they're going to help you do that. So it's they these organisations are actually helping you and actively kind of coaching you in campaigning, which is fantastic. So first point of all call is like sign up to their newsletters and follow them on social media because they're really good at what they do. And they are all incredibly inclusive organisations. So if you are interested in finding out more, they will definitely they will definitely help you. Thank you. What a great way to close the episode. Thank you so much to Isabel and Dana for coming on to the podcast today. It was great to explore this area, which is so important and hopefully, you know, will be continued to be spoken about, discussed and shared um, in, in, in the years to come. A huge thank you to New Outro for making this podcast possible. And if you enjoyed listening to today's episode, I'd love it if you shared this episode with a friend or colleague who you think would find it interesting. 
Our next episode of the Dietitian Cafe will be out soon. But in the meantime, you can check out our previous episodes or head over to our RD2B Dietitian Cafe podcast, where once a month, our student dietitian host discusses the world of dietetics with a range of guests, all aimed at aspiring dietitians. Thank you for joining us at the Dietitian Cafe. See you next time. Bye.